0: Entering the Freedom Hut.
1: America falls in love with a military super dog. A new witness emerges in the whole Ukraine gate fiasco. What happened to the whistleblower, by the way? Trump and maximum immunity claims. Sean Spicer gets voted through. California fires and utility company nonsense. China has smart toilets. And uh, Trump Turnberry, not really a thing. We got that and much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show.
0: This This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission. is to decode what really matters (laughs) with actionable intelligence. One small family. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton.
2: It is Buck Sexton. Now.
1: Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. We have some things to get to today, although I do, I do, uh, promise that we're going to probably jump around more than usual because there's not that one dominating news story that everyone's also focused on. I did want to take a moment just to say that the internet was a flame, a light. The internet was on fire with all these photos of, now they said they, I've seen the name. I don't want to say the name because people are saying the name might not be officially the name, and but a a dog that is credited with helping to chase down Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has taken the uh, the hearts, has won the hearts of the American people. There's a, f- a photo of that canine, uh, that canine hero that's making the rounds all over the place. And it's one of these moments where I have to say, the American people love dogs so much, and I'm one of the American people who loves dogs so much that I'm not sure that it's rational, but I'm also sure that I don't care uh, dogs are a gift. They're fantastic. Uh, reminds me, I probably need to get one, even though as a guy who lives solo, it's not that easy to take care of them. I also believe that it's likely that there will be a surge in ownership of Belgian Malinois and, uh, and Dutch Shepherds. Um, those are the two dogs that I think these days are most often. Now, I'm not a canine handler, so any of you listening who know more about this, by all means, let me know. But I've met plenty of people in the special operations community out in the field who those tend to be the dog breeds that they they have. There's also German shepherds, obviously, but a lot of Belgian Malinois a lot of Dutch shepherds. And I mean, those things, when you see them and they're well trained, they're like fur rockets with teeth. And they're incredibly uh, good at what they do, tracking down bad guys, getting into tight spaces, moving very quickly through buildings. Uh, tackling and grabbing the bad guys, even when they're armed. I think there's going to be a spike in ownership of those dogs. I'm a little concerned that people, as somebody who spent way too much of his childhood reading through the American Kennel Club book and learning all the different dog breeds and reading about their temperaments, if you get a Belgian Malinois, you better know what you're doing with a dog because they require a firm hand, a master who establishes himself or herself as the alpha uh, and they are working dogs. I'm just, I'm just putting that out I feel like people now are now like, Oh, look at this dog. They're amazing. They're so there can be fantastic animals. No question about it, but you're not getting a pug, you know, where the pug gets a little out of line and you're like, Oh, little silly pug. Like this is a, this is an animal that has a, a purpose is bred for a purpose. And that purpose is to work, to assist military and law enforcement, to track and to hunt down perpetrators. So um, there was a little bit more fallout also yesterday from the media efforts to take away from what is clearly a big Trump national security victory. I know we spent a lot of time on this yesterday, so I won't get into it for very long. But one of my favorites was when uh, there was this concern. Why? Why would President Trump not inform like Nancy Pelosi or Adam Schiff about the raid before it happened? And the truth is, why really, You I'd put it in the other direction. Why would he? Uh, I know people would say that it's custom, but they keep saying the president's a traitor. So I think there's a degree of ill will there that we have to recognize on both sides. Uh, But here's his answer. I mean, President Trump never wanted to back away from the media trying to corner him. Here's his answer to why they didn't tell Democrat leadership about the effort to uh, the successful, hugely important raid against Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Play clip two, please.
0: Well, I guess uh, the only thing is they were talking about why didn't I give the information to Adam Schiff and his committee? And the answer is because I think Adam Schiff is the biggest leaker in Washington. You know that. I know that. We all know that. I do think a
1: lot of people would agree that Adam Schiff is a huge leaker and a very dishonest and dishonorable guy. And, of course, the media went apoplectic over this thing. They were still so very, very upset. Uh, how how dare the president, the commander in chief, make this decision without getting the thumbs up from not that she had to give a thumbs up, but but informing Nancy Pelosi beforehand. Uh, and then there was the, the continued shock that I think that some of the country had a lot of us expect nothing more than this from The Washington Post. But there was a degree of shock from some quarters over WAPO, The Washington Post, um, saying that. Well, the whole austere scholar obituary for Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, he was an austere scholar, they claimed in the headline. Uh, it turns out his chief propaganda guy for the Islamic State was also taken out. So clearly, the special operations community has a problem with austere scholars. Our guys in, in JSOC, our, our SEALs, and Delta and Rangers, they really don't like austere scholars in, in Syria. That's what we found out in the last few days. Uh, but Kellyanne Conway, who I think would accurately be described as fierce. She's fierce when she wants to be. Uh, she pointed out that would would WAPO make such an error if it were about her? I mean, I said this, too. This is the obvious way to illustrate the point. But it was funny to hear a senior White House advisor get into it as well, that if somebody from the White House, heaven forbid, passed away from you know natural causes, would the obituary in the Washington Post make any effort whatsoever to be fair, to be favorable, even to be respectful? No, of course not. Play uh, seventeen.
2: I just want to say this last thing on behalf of the president in the White House. This obituary was a disgrace. And I would ask the Washington Post, close your eyes and pretend that al-Baghdadi worked in the Trump White House and then go rewrite your obituary. I bet you wouldn't be as kind.
1: (laughs) Wow. If al-Baghdadi worked in the White House, that would be a bigger bigger problem for the bigger issue. Uh, Perhaps a bit of exaggeration, but it feels like not nearly enough. And now we move on today because they lost the battle to make this a a problem about uh, Trump's. Oh, wait, no, there's one more thing where we keep hearing about how well he almost jeopardized the mission with his pullout decision from Syria. We keep hearing that, uh, that this that Trump was was so reckless that this could have gone very bad all because of Trump. Even though I thought, isn't he the commander-in-chief? Doesn't he get credit? You know, If the economy is terrible, doesn't they get, the president get credit for it or, or blame for it? And same thing if it goes really well. In a way that's not really directly linked to any one particular person. The answer is, of course. We, we know this is the case. Presidents get more credit and more blame than they are due. That's just the way things are. True of generals of armies, too, by the way. More credit than they deserve, more blame than they deserve, depending on the circumstances. But in this issue in, on, on this issue, there are so many people in the media who have really no understanding whatsoever of the military that or, or how the military operates or functions what what the military is capable of that this this line I, I was seeing even from some conservatives of oh we would never be able to do the strike we did uh, if Trump had had his way. well here's what first of all Trump did get his way and that's why the strike happened. but here's general Mark. Milley responding about the operational capabilities of the United States military to pull off something like the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi raid. Play 16
2: can you explain how difficult this operation would have been if you didn't have troops or bases um, on the ground in syria and in iraq
0: good well we do have video
3: photos we're not prepared at this time to release those uh, they're going through a declassification process i think what you'll see here in the coming days is we'll set up uh, some operational and tactical level briefings by central command uh, and you'll be provided some uh, video and and uh, photos etc of that
0: how would it have been to carry out this operation if you didn't have troops on the ground?
3: From an operational standpoint, the United States military can strike any target anywhere, anytime.
1: I want to put that at the top of the show, just as a reminder for like, just have that as part of our opening. General Milley saying from an operational standpoint, we can hit anyone, anywhere, anytime. Yeah. America. So that was a good answer to the question, I think, and hopefully we will silence a little bit of the bad faith uh, criticism that's out there. Oh, speaking of bad faith criticism, Chuck Schumer, noted counterterrorism expert, also wanted to talk. Ch- We're going to get to this Ukraine testimony thing. You know, more more people opining over what a transcript means that we've already seen and discussed ad nauseum what the transcript says. But oh, gosh, well, someone else's opinion on this, like, like we're really supposed to care. Uh, but here's what Chuck Schumer noted counterterrorism expert. Heavy on the sarcasm there. Uh, thinks about the defeat of ISIS. Play 14, please.
0: We still need a plan for the enduring defeat of ISIS. They are not gone. We must include details on how we will deal with escaped prisoners. Nobody knows these are evil people. They want to hurt us. And they can escape from the prisons and Lord knows where they'll go. But we know a good chunk of them will want to do damage to our homeland. So far, the administration, unfortunately, has articulated no coherent plan. Its top officials, Secretary Pompeo, Secretary Esper, seem unable to find time to even brief Congress in all likelihood because they have nothing real to say. No plan. What was the
1: coherent plan, Chuck Schumer, when President Obama was running things and about a half a million people died in Syria? A massive terrorist group took over hundreds and hundreds of miles of territory and was enslaving, mutilating and murdering at will and engaging in external plotting inspiring attacks against european allies and against the american homeland what was the obama administration coherent plan oh i remember don't do stupid stuff and we were supposed to think that was smart that was a a brilliant strategic slogan don't do stupid and they didn't say stuff by the way Hmm. it's almost like everything now is just turned partisan for the democrats and so nothing else really matters you do start to get that sense don't you Speaking of which, the impeachment proceedings and yet another person coming forward to tell us what we've already, well, the facts that we already know, but to give another spin on it. Ooh, There's a, a bit of a trouble bubbling up over this one. Who exactly is this official former National Security aide Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman? We will get into what he says about how oh now the walls are closing in on Trump. Now Trump has gone too far. Now it's all. No, no, none of that is true. None of that is true. But they never grow tired of this. Uh, The inmates in the Democratic Party took over the asylum a long time ago. They do the same thing and expect a different result and don't think that it's crazy. And so here we are talking more about this phone call with President Trump and the uh, leader of Ukraine. We will get into this in uh, in a second. The New York Times headline is supposed to send shivers down the spines of people throughout the Trump-supporting world. Official who heard Trump's Ukraine call reported his concerns. This is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. And now is where we have to start this by saying, yes, he served honorably. Yes, he's a Purple Heart recipient. And we thank him for his military service. That does not mean... And the media knows this, but this is a very dishonest game they like to play, that his opinion about what is a clearly political matter holds any more weight than yours or mine or anybody else's. That he has expertise in Ukraine policy does not matter. This is a question of whether or not the president of the United States did anything illegal in his phone call. And the answer is most decidedly no. And then beyond that, did the president of the United States do anything that, was unbecoming of the commander in chief. And the answer to that is the voters decide. I don't care what Lieutenant Colonel Vindman thinks about the phone call. It does not sway me one bit, but it is supposed to. Um, he, quote, plans to tell. Uh, by the way, I read his testimony this morning. Uh, I keep wondering, this testimony gets leaked out from all these people that are speaking behind closed doors. Almost like this has all been orchestrated by Democrats and this is a sham and a scam. In fact, I believe this morning I saw Congressman Mark Meadows sharing on Twitter that this may be uh, moved from the Judiciary Committee to the Intel Committee. So now they're going to shift committees. I mean, they're shifty shift. They're just going to play as many games as they can to control the process. And in fact, one reason why they haven't established a vote on the impeachment process Yesterday, they were saying Nancy Pelosi was about to do it. Today, they're saying, oh, no, Pelosi says there is no impeachment process vote that's going to happen. I mean, is that they're not really sure because it has nothing to none of this has anything to do with what is fair or ethical or decent. This is all about what maximizes political benefit for Democrats and helps them the most in 2020 against Donald Trump. Everything else is secondary, a non-consideration. They simply and truly do not care. And so now we have the details of this and much has been made of Vinman, according to the New York Times, trying to give advice to the Ukrainians about how to deal with the United States government and People have looked at this and said, what the heck is that all about? You should never be helping a foreign government figure out what America is trying to do, especially if you're a senior American government official. Uh, But this is now a repetition of what we've already been told, which is that people don't like Trump's Ukraine. People that had set up a Ukraine policy on the previous administration and those who have been working for the national security apparatus for many years on this issue, didn't like some of the moves President Trump was was making. This is from the New York Times. Quote, "Uh, Vindman will testify that he watched with alarm as outside influencers began pushing a false narrative about Ukraine that was counter to the consensus view of American national security officials and harmful to United States interests. End quote. Guess what, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman? I don't care that you think that. That's like your opinion, man. It doesn't matter. You're allowed to share it, sure. But this this is not a high crime or misdemeanor issue. This is a you don't like what the president was doing issue. And Democrats have so conflated these two things that they really believe if they're very upset, if they're like really, really, really upset about something, then it doesn't really matter if it's not actually a crime because... They're angry enough about it that it should be a crime. And I think that's, in summary form, what this whole impeachment thing's all about. They hate Trump so much that their hatred itself must be evidence of the high crimes and misdemeanors constitutionally mandated. But it's not. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show, team. So, continuing on with this theme of the, the latest, oh my gosh, this new addition to the whistleblower. Wait. Whatever happened to the whistleblower? Why is it that the whistleblower is not going to testify now? Just the written statement. No no testimony from the whistleblower. Huh. Because I remember in the early days of this, when it was all about truth and justice in the American way, according to Congressman Schiff, I remember that it was, of course, necessary for the whistleblower to testify. Uh, But then they figured out the whistleblower had coordinated with Adam Schiff before the complaint was made public and that started to look kind of bad almost like this was motivated by partisanship and has nothing to do with actual crimes or misdemeanors as reference in the constitution, or high crimes and misdemeanors as reference the constitution or just crime crimes which was initially alleged as well remember that i haven't forgotten this is the game they like to play oh they throw out some criminal charge and everybody who knows anything about the law or can just read a legal text goes that's that's not True. That's not a criminal. You you can't charge the president with a campaign finance violation because he was using the pressure of his office to get a an outcome that would benefit him politically. Because any president who uses the pressure of his office with a foreign counterpart would be getting on a major policy issue, be getting some kind of benefit politically. Doing anything smart for the president should not be illegal. Which is effectively what that interpretation of the law would mean. Oh, the president just signed this treaty, gonna help him at re-election time. Clearly, getting a foreign benefit from that counterpart, or a benefit from that foreign counterpart. This is absurd. That was the legal theory. Notice so you see this recurring emoluments stretching that beyond comprehension. Oh, diplomats have bought cheeseburgers at Trump Hotel. They must own Trump's foreign policy. This is absurd. But this is really the case they make. Uh, the Usage of the Logan Act, the Logan Act, in order to have that uh, interview with General Flynn, entrapment interview with the FBI. No one thought seriously they were going to bring a Logan Act charge. But uh, see, they they use the pretense of a legal concern in order to bring in the apparatus of the state and then poke around and the process becomes the punishment. Democrats excel at this and they hate that it would be used in the other direction. Oh, no, you're not allowed to investigate, even if there is a legitimate pretext for the investigation or rather a legitimate basis for the investigation. You're not allowed to do that. We have more here. This is all about Colonel Vinman's policy concerns. Again, I, I simply do not care what his policy concerns are. I don't even find them particularly interesting. He wants to do things one way. Trump wants to do things another way. Trump's the commander in chief. The NSC staff is not there to subvert the will or the policy directives of the president of the United States. I know they think they are. I know the State Department thinks they are. I know all these people that sit in boring, beige-walled government offices all across the D.C. metropolitan area believe that they are supposed to thwart the will of the president because they know better, but that's not true true that's not how our system works that is not why they are sitting in those chairs and yet here we are new york times continues colonel Vindman was concerned oh no after he learned that the white house budget office had taken the unusual step of withholding the 391 million dollar package of security assistance for ukraine that had been approved by congress they got the money folks Nothing happened. They keep on saying this like, oh my gosh, Ukraine, they were left on the front lines without any without any bullets, without anything. The security assistance went through and the Ukrainians during this whole ruckus that we're talking about here didn't even know that there was a hold, a review placed on that security assistance. So how could you have been using the security aid? To force them to do something that would be illicit, and I'm, and I'm not even agreeing that it is illicit necessarily. I think there's a legitimate basis to investigate what the Bidens were doing in Ukraine. I'm sorry. I know that makes me a crazy person, even on the right for some people these days. I don't care. You know, It's, it's a little bit like cancel culture. Some conservatives have figured out that the only way to begin to bring things back to normalcy is to say, you're going to cancel, we're going to cancel. You're going to have these crazy rules. You have to live by these crazy rules. And if investigations that are at least able to to appear legitimate are going to be a tool that Democrats throw at Republicans all the time, if Republicans have an even more legitimate basis for an investigation that just happens to negatively affect some Democrat politicians, guess what? Too bad. Or we can just allow one side to weaponize the law and have no response to it whatsoever. Which has been the reality. I mean, we can go back to the the Romney school of fighting against the left. Just, just keep getting smacked around and say, well, but I'm really ethical when I'm getting slapped around. I'm really a nice person while they are running roughshod over the Constitution and taking away the rights of the people that I said I would protect in my elected office. But whoops, no, I don't want to be mean. Quote. At least one previous witness has testified that Mr. Trump directed the aid be frozen until he could secure a commitment from Zelensky to announce an investigation of the Bidens. While Colonel Vindman's concerns were shared by a number of other officials, some of whom have already testified, he was in a unique position because he emigrated from Ukraine along with his family when he was a child. He is fluent in Ukrainian and Russian. Ukrainian officials sought advice from him about how to deal with Mr. Giuliani. Though they typically communicated in English, Giuliani's an American working at the behest of the president. I, I know that libs and Democrats hate this, don't like this, reject this, doesn't doesn't change anything. Giuliani's an American and he's the president's personal lawyer. He is working on a on a directive from the President of the United States and or at the direction of the President of the United States. And this guy is helping the Ukrainians to deal with him? Now, I'm not throwing around... People have been talking a lot about dual loyalty because I I don't care where a person grew up or where they're from. That, that is irrelevant to me. Why would you be assisting a foreign counterpart in a process of handling and negotiating with an American interlocutor who is working for the president of the United States? Well, what, what kind of authority does one have to do that and why would one do that i i think we all know and this is why when they say it's unfair to call this person a never trumper he has a policy dispute with the president of the united states he was very very worried about the directive to start an investigation of biden oh can we just keep two things in mind here as we continue to get hammered with this this really just this endless propaganda narrative the aid was not cut off the investigation of Biden did, as far as we know, did not even happen, did not even start. So what are we all so worked up about here again? You know, this reminds me of how people saying, oh, Trump obstructed the Russia collusion investigation, except he could have shut it down any day he wanted to. So he didn't shut it. He didn't obstruct it. Oh, but he wanted he said he wanted to obstruct it. This is pathetic. We, we keep running back to this over and over again we're going to uh, punish the president of the United States for thought crime against liberal pieties. I don't think so. Uh, this is not going to change anything. Uh, this is not going to shift any public support, I think, for or against the president. Uh, I, I believe that there's there are two forces that are pushing the Democrats into this, uh, or, or that make the Democrats think that they have to do this. One of them is that their base is insane, Has really lost its mind. I mean, the left wing base is completely crazy uh, and and they demand this. So there are some Democrats in Congress are saying, look, we got to we got to help out those in crazy town here who need to see some action or else they're going to flip out at us. So that's one part of it. So they're just placating the the craziest elements of the the Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democratic Party. That's one aspect. And the other is I do think there are some Democrats who in Congress who have convinced themselves that Trump is such an existential threat to the United States whatever they think that even means. I don't even know how they could what the nuclear war that he hasn't started, he hasn't started any war unlike his predecessors. Uh, what exactly is this grand threat that Trump poses to the republic? Me- saying mean things to smug, overpaid, whiny journalists for the media establishment. That's a massive threat to this country. I don't think so. I'm sorry. I don't I don't see it that way. Uh, but I do believe there are members of Congress who think that anything that they have to do to harm uh, this president's reelection prospects is justified. And even if that means manipulating this impeachment process so that it makes a mockery of the House of Representatives, which I already think they've already managed that, they have dramatically undermined any public confidence that Congress is a place where serious people gather to do serious things. This impeachment so far is a sham. It's a clown show. It's ridiculous. And yet here we are. Here we are. It's going to just push on. It looks now like they won't get the the consensus opinion, which who knows what that even is, but the media and the Democrats are all saying to each other that, that it looks like this will extend into the new year. That also, though, means that if the Senate gets dragged into this, then you will have Democrat senators who should be out there on the campaign trail for the primary, you know, Klobuchar and Warren and Booker and you know, go down the list, who might all of a sudden have some duties in the Senate having to do with a an impeachment trial. Now, I don't know if they think that that's a good trade-off, but I would guess it's not. So Democrats haven't even figured out what the strategy is here yet. They just know they feel like they've got something. And like a terrier with a bone, they're just not going to let it go. They're just going to keep shaking and shaking and hope that something happens. That's pretty much the Democrat strategy. Just keep shaking. Just keep doing crazy stuff and see if they can finally break through the great wall of Trumpism. I don't think they're going to get there, but they're going to keep trying, folks, because their policy proposals certainly aren't going to get it done. And the candidates they're putting forward aren't going to get it done. So impeachment is their X factor. I can understand why the president doesn't want these witnesses to come forward. What I find harder to understand is why the Republican members of this body in this House don't want these witnesses to come forward. Where is their duty to this institution? Where is their duty to the Constitution? Where is their respect for the rule of law? Where is Adam Schiff's respect for the rule of law? Well, we know that was tossed out tossed out the window a long time ago doesn't really matter does it Uh, of course now you're going to have a response to this democrat weaponization of of a process that no one even really knows they're making it up as they go along acting like it's a legal process mind you when it's just clearly a political process they can figure out whatever the whatever they want to do on any given day and then just institute that but i would note that there's a i I do have a, a real concern about something It comes up as a result of this. Of of course, the president has no choice and would be foolish uh, if he were to just go along with all this stuff. So he has no choice but to fight against and his legal team in the White House these efforts to going into an election year, mind you, try to use Congress as some bat with which to beat down the chances of a reelection for President Trump. Uh, So they should fight it at at every stage and they should make this as difficult as possible because there is there's no good faith in the process. So that should be responded to in turn. Now, there's also the concern, though, about what the president's lawyers are asserting as a result of this. The Wall Street Journal has a piece here. Trump attorney Trump attorneys assert immunity from a broad sweep of laws Um. And when you look over the documents and the filings that Trump's legal team has put together in response to this concerted effort from Democrats to destroy his presidency, you have a lot of a a very broad swath of documents that are all more or less saying the same thing, which is that Trump is, quote, immune to civil lawsuits, judicial orders, criminal investigations or congressional probes. The journal writes here, those arguments have become even more aggressive as Mr. Trump faces numerous legal threats, including a possible impeachment in Congress, a New York state prosecutor who are, a prosecutor who has subpoenaed his tax records as part of a criminal probe and a welter of civil lawsuits. They are trying lawfare against this president personally, it's not 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 the administration. They're going after the president of the United States personally. But this, in response, now lawyers will often take a maximalist position on behalf of their clients. You know, if you go into a divorce proceeding, your lawyer is probably going to say, "Well, my client deserves full custody of the kids and all the marital assets and should get spousal support." It doesn't matter what the reason, right? And you start the negotiation from there for obvious reasons. In this context, when you have all these different entities that are trying to personally legally attack the President of the United States while he's the president, I can understand why his lawyers are saying, you don't even essentially, you don't even have standing for this. You don't even have the grounds to bring this lawsuit against the president, that he has a a de facto immunity from all of this stuff while he's president. That said, that that, that then does result in, Some of what we've already seen, which is people saying or lawyers on behalf of the president making the claim that he could, in fact, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not get prosecuted. This has now become a a point of legal contention among some. And you even had uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio, who said, no, we would arrest him in New York City even if. Hey, could you imagine that, by the way? What happens What happens if, if I mean, just if we're theoretically playing out this legal circumstance, if the president of the United States were to shoot somebody and then the local police, which is really just an extension of state police powers, but you know, local police here in New York wanted to make an arrest, would it, Secret Service, if the Secret Service was told the president was under threat from local police, I mean, this starts to get crazy, right? It turns into a Tom Clancy novel or something. Or that scene at the end of the movie, The Siege, which I actually think is a an underrated movie for what it is with uh, Denzel Washington and Annette Benning, where you have U.S. military and FBI agents all drawing down on each other because the rogue, Bruce Willis, who's a rogue colonel, I think, not a general, uh, is doing bad stuff. And the FBI wants to arrest him and then he tells his guys and they all uh, they all have that standoff at the end. But I have to say, I think it's uh, it's fascinating to see The legal back and forth here over whether or not a president can, in fact, be indicted for anything. The president's position right now is, nope, he cannot. We will be made to revisit this, my friends. This is not going to go away.
0: He was a sick and depraved man, and now he's dead. He's dead. He's dead as a doornail.
1: There are a lot of ways that one could describe the uh, death of Baghdadi and and who Abu Bakr al Baghdadi was. That it really turns it really turns into a competition to find the most the the, the most um, clear put down of who this individual was, uh, language that really conveys what a disgrace and what a dehumanizing. An evil piece of, you know, you want to go to the profane. I'll just say it. You want to start dropping curses when you're talking about a guy like this. I I get that. And that's the the normal feeling that all of us would have. Um, Somebody who would do this, somebody who would keep sex slaves, somebody who would murder men, women, children, have them executed, have them tortured, all all these, the most horrible things imaginable. And by the way, Baghdadi would have done it to millions of people if he could have. Remember that. You know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, if he had a nuke to set off in New York City, he would do it tomorrow. Well, he won't be doing anything tomorrow except burning in hell. But there are some people who, as we've been discussing, were distracted from this obvious truth of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi because to them, the bigger concern, the bigger enemy than the Islamic State is clearly Donald Trump. And this is a malady that has been on the left for a long time. Right, The bigger concern than Al-Qaeda was George Bush. For a lot of liberals in America, for a long time, I remember I was in the CIA during the Bush administration and a lot of people were much more worried about Bush than they were about Saddam. They were about the Taliban, Al Qaeda, you name it. The real enemy was Bush or the real worry was was Bush and his and his foreign policy. And this reminds me of something that uh, we have seen from the Trump administration that I think is very important. There are a lot of things about Trump that will last long after he's uh, out of office hopefully in 2024 but one of my favorites is that he has managed to expose the media and liberals and democrats in a way that nobody else had before because they drop the pretense that they often hide behind they drop from behind their hiding places in, oh i'm just an objective journalist or oh i'm just a A government, a faithful government servant who would never, ever try to take politics into my own hands, use the power that I'm given to execute a very specific mission of the federal government and do something else with that. Oh, never. Good heavens. And then we had Comey and Clapper and Brennan and, you know, Strzok and Page and, you know, just go down the whole list and CNN just making a mockery of itself and The Washington Post and The New York Times False stories, fake stories, having to fire journalists because they write fake stuff about the president, burning sources to write something nasty about the president, some minor news item somewhere. I mean, just just no integrity, no ethics, just just throwing it all out the window because resistance is all that matters. And that's been very illuminating. That's been really worthwhile for us as a country. And we will not forget it. I will not forget it. Um, and the two greatest clarifiers of media bias in the last decade in my opinion are twitter because now we have journalists who at eight o'clock in the morning are like ha 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 lol donald trump is a moron and then at eight o'clock at night are on tv tonight donald trump destroyed the constitution again i'm just an objective journalist here just telling you the objective truth don't don't pay attention to my ha ha trump is a moron tweet they do this all the time So that's one part of part of it. But the other is uh, also just the Trump himself. The existence of Trump has, I think, heightened that that phenomenon on Twitter and elsewhere. They just can't help themselves. They hate this guy so much that they make errors. They get so angry about Trump that they're not as conniving. They're not as uh, tactically sound in their propaganda as they were in the past. And I think that's been very useful. The one part of that that I have to say is surprising, and this is what has made me get in this frame of mind, uh, is what he has shown us about many conservatives, too. You see, in the early days of never Trump, and there were people who were opposed to Trump during the primary, and I understand why, and I had my concerns about Trump during the primary, too. Did not have any concerns as soon as he was the nominee. He was my guy, full stop. But... There have been there has been this uh, this movement of never Trumpers who initially for about the first two years of the Trump presidency were holding themselves up as the true idealists of the conservative movement. They were the real right wing uh, true believers, in a sense, because they were adhering to the principles that everybody else had abandoned because of this reality TV barbarian who had taken over the Republican Party. That was the basic narrative. But what we've really seen are that many of the lot, not all of them, I'm not going to put them all in but many of the loudest voices in that category have, in fact, now made common cause with Democrats, vote for Democrats, want Democrat policies to get through, have switched teams, are the definition politically of a turncoat. And no longer clinging to the fiction that they're the true conservatives. So, in a sense, Trump has brought out the truth of many people who were formerly leading voices of the conservative establishment. People like Bill Kristol, people like Max Boot, people who I used to have on this show sometimes as guests, some of whom I'm still reasonably friendly with, so I will try to refrain from bringing up their names on air just out of personal loyalty. But I always tell you that my personal loyalties do interfere with my analysis as in my friends are off limits for my show. Um, And that's just a point of honor that I maintain. I, you can disagree with that. Some people would, but that's just, I'm I'm honest with you about it. Uh, But I, I, An amazing example of this, a stark, wow, punch you in the face kind of example of exactly what I'm talking about, Max Boot, who is not a friend of mine, uh, who wears a fedora unironically in his main photos on Twitter and stuff, which just, it's it's pretty stunning. Um, And he's a surly fellow, and I think also increasingly an emotionally unwell fellow, but I can't prove that. I'm just basing it on my, my limited dealings with him and what I see on TV. But he wrote a column for the Washington Post, which also has just made a complete fool of itself in this Baghdadi process, in which he wrote, this is in a column, quote, the assertion that Baghdadi died as a coward was, in any case, contradicted by the fact that rather than be captured, he blew himself up, end quote. So in a column in the second lar- or third largest newspaper in the country, I think the Washington Post is the third largest. deal. I don't know. It's close to it. Probably the second most esteemed liberal newspaper after The New York Times. But in a column that he had to know was going to be read by a fair amount of people, Max Boot, driven by his ferocious Trump hatred and obvious narcissism and hurt feelings at no longer being particularly important, not the way that he thought he used to be. He no longer has a political party around him that he feels he can direct. He has an important place in. There is a selfishness that has been exposed for many, not all, many never Trumpers who have gone so far in their anti-Trumpism that they actively work to assist the other side. And now they can't hide from that anymore. And, And they also make fools of themselves. They can't hide from that either. Why would anyone think it appropriate, even for a moment, to suggest that Baghdadi suiciding himself and three of his own children with a suicide vest means that he's not a coward? Um, who, Who would think that, first of all, and then who would write that out? Who would think that they should write it out and then submit it under their own name? to a uh, a newspaper and not understand what the consequences of that would be uh, the the buffoonery here from boot is stunning except you have to understand he this is an, an emotional an emotional response for him because anything that is good for trump he feels like is bad for him it's all personal a lot of never trumpers it's all personal they're not important anymore they got used to being important within a certain set of the american right they got used to being celebrated and everyone listening to them and everybody and then all of a sudden when people started to question either some of their ideas or question their inability to see what many of the rest of us see about trump which is not that trump is perfect i don't think trump is perfect at all i think that trump has made plenty of mistakes i think he's got plenty of personality flaws that are pretty shocking at times um i i don't sit here telling you that he's he's beyond reproach at all in fact i think it's important we should criticize trump more on the let's say trillion dollar deficit we're running this year on the and some of you write in and say buck you can't criticize him on this or he's trying to build a wall or he's not trying hard enough but that's a long way criticizing somebody for not doing well enough i mean this is the difference between a coach who's trying to encourage his player on the field versus people in the stands who are saying you stink get out the game that's what never trump became Really, from the beginning. And then we find out not only are they yelling at Trump, you stink, get out of the game, but they were secretly rooting for the other side the whole time. Wow. I don't think we should listen to them anymore about game strategy if that's going to be their approach. Boot had to walk this back, by the way, but he's such a, a, a surly and smug fellow. We talked about immigration once when I was on Rising and he just didn't know what he was talking about. He came on TV, figures I've written I've written some books that were well reviewed on the history of, uh, of of warfare. And therefore, I know about immigration. And so he came on TV and said some stupid things like walls don't work. And everybody knows that false. That's not true. Walls do work. And anybody who knows anything about the border knows the walls work. So there's that. Uh, uh, he he did have to add this little little uh, note to his piece quoted earlier version of this column included a sentence. Questioning whether Trump was right to call Baghdadi a coward because he blew himself up. The line was removed because it unintentionally conveyed the impression that I considered Baghdadi courageous. Well, that is kind of what he said when you say someone's not a coward because they blew themselves up. I mean, kind of saying that they're not a coward. <laughs> so I don't know what else to say about that other than Trump derangement syndrome is a powerful drug. and Some people take way too much of it and we see the results of it now so we have i think greater clarity in many ways about who is who in the political discussion right now than we've ever had before because they can't help themselves trump is the great clarifier in that sense sure they'll they'll always talk about how he polarizes things and he makes it more difficult to have certain civil conversations with the other side yeah but he also lets us know who really wants what and who stands for what in the political debate in this country and i think that in itself is especially worthwhile
0: oh i don't think it's aggressive at all i would be surprised if he made those uh, comments in a negative way but i don't think uh, the response would be if he actually said that if he actually meant that i said what i do and that i mean so now we get another
1: moment in the media's uh life cycle here where they're using a former using the words of a former trump uh official to, to bash the president. And, and here's what I believe is, is that issue here. Um, Kelly, who's a retired Marine Corps general, said during the Sea Island Summit, which was hosted by the Washington Examiner, Sea Island here is a very nice place. Uh, Kelly said that if he uh, if he had stayed on as chief of staff, Trump wouldn't be in the midst of the current impeachment inquiry. Uh, saying that certain White House advisors could have pre- prevented it. And, quote, here's the quote from Kelly. I said, whatever you do, and we're still in the process of trying to find someone to take my my place. I said, whatever you do, don't hire a yes man, someone who won't tell you the truth. Don't do that, because if you do, I believe you will be impeached. OK, well, maybe Kelly said it. Maybe he didn't. President Trump seems to think that that wasn't said. Um Keep in mind, people have been talking about how Trump was going to be impeached from the day he took office because of the ferocious hatred the left has for him. So it's not a tough thing to say. Not, not that's not analysis that would be that should be surprising to anybody. Do I think that the president's? I was talking before, but where I'd criticize the president. Do I think the president's choices of uh, senior advisors and staff around him have been almost? inexplicably bad. Yes. Yes, I do. Uh, There is there is no justification. There's no rational way to explain many of the choices that Trump made about who to put around him and and who to put in positions of real authority. Scaramucci, Omarosa. I mean, it really was a little bit like he said or like he decided that he was staffing up a reality TV show again, like he was picking people for The Apprentice White House. That's real. Let's let's be clear. Let's be honest about that. Um, There were a lot of people that were brought in that had to be shown the door rather quickly and they never should have been brought in. So that's one area. And by the way, that does fall on the president. I mean, He's got a lot of authority and these are important decisions to make and to make such poor ones uh, reflects badly on his judgment as a as a commander in chief. I, I think that there's no way around that I think we need to be honest about that so I'm telling you that's that's what I think about where the president is on on all of it um on the upside though they give you a happy thing that we so that's a that's a, a place where I say Trump you know Trump gets a he gets a C minus on appointees and and senior advisors really C minus uh, it's gotten a little bit better but it's cuz he's went through a lot of the really bad choices But here is, uh, on the upside of things, the president is, and whether you're pro-Trump or not, if you are a conservative, you have to be pleased with what is going on right now uh, in the federal judiciary. Here is President Trump. Play clip one, please. I want to thank you, President
0: Obama, for giving me 142 open judges. How you allowed that to happen is beyond me. It's beyond me. Thank you, President Obama, very much. Everybody in this room thanks you. Now, he's being a little funny there, but this
1: is a real point that he's making. The hashtag resistance has relied so much on federal judges who are activists appointed largely by Obama, but also by Clinton and sometimes by Republicans too. You'll, you'll notice Democrats never seem to slip up on this. Who is the Democrat Supreme Court appointee You know, from a Democrat administration that turned out to be really Republican? Doesn't happen. Meanwhile, you go back and look at Reagan and George H.W. Bush, some of the people they were putting in there in the uh, federal in the Supreme Court turn out to be leftists. Activists in judges robes never happens the other way. I'm not making it up. Think about it. Who is it? You know, Sotomayor, liberal, Kagan, liberal, Ginsburg, liberal. They're, They're all liberals, liberals and in lockstep with liberalism. I mean, never disappoint. The party faithful of the Democrats, really, on anything important, I should say, on some more minor stuff, procedural things, people have a different view. But anyway, the judiciary, uh, not just Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, but the judiciary at the federal and district court level or at the district court level, I should say, an appeals court, uh, that being changed in the way that it is right now and the kind of judges that Trump is picking, this is where his outsourcing Decisions a bit to people who know more and and he can trust on which judges to pick has been a good move. The Federalist Society, et cetera. So on the upside, Spicy gets through. Very important news item for you here. Uh, The show Dancing with the Stars has Sean Spicer on as a contestant. You remember Sean Spicer. He was White House press secretary for a, a, a short time and uh was perhaps best known well was was in a pop culture sense best known for the melissa mccarthy send-up of him uh impersonation of him and and also because he was the one who came out and said that the uh inauguration was the biggest and most attended inauguration ever and that was a that was a bad look it just it didn't didn't come come off well at all but i'm glad to see that he's he, by the way, he's, he's, a, he's a nice nice dude. Um, I've, I've bumped into him a few times at the Trump Hotel in D.C. where it's the really the uh, GOP clubhouse where a lot of people hang out. I hear they might be selling it, by the way, which is kind of a bummer because if you want to have really overpriced drinks in a space that plays Muzak 24-7, Trump Hotel is definitely, the lobby there is definitely the place you want to do it. I the the I don't know if it's flambéed bacon or what, like flamed bacon, whatever. They take a blowtorch To the bacon there, and they have these hanging bacon strips, and I'm telling you, it is amazing. I mean, they they do bacon right at Trump Hotel, so I give credit where it's due, always. One of the mantras of this show, but for, you know, our pop culture correspondent here is producer Mark, and producer Mark, I do have to ask you, first of all, have you ever seen... Have you ever seen uh, Dancing with the Stars? Because I have not. I've seen clips. I've seen clips, too. Have you ever actually watched the show? No, I think
3: you? my fiance watches.
1: It's a pretty popular show, apparently. Yeah. I think my main man, Tucker Carlson, was on at one point. So, I mean, like, if they came asking the Buckster, but I would... I'm have gotta, you like,
3: ever ballroom danced? I don't
1: think... Of course I took some ballroom dancing growing up. I had debutante balls to go to, my friend, as an escort.
3: Oh. That's right. uh, so you were an escort, is what you're saying. To a debutante ball, we were sixteen.
1: <laughs> uh, but I, I would just point out that that spicy is, my understanding, the worst in terms of actual dancing skill. My dancing skills, by the way, I don't know. I don't even know if America could handle these funky moves. But spicy, true, true. Don't that's uh, a, that's an accurate thing. They don't. I don't know if they can handle it. I don't it think I can bad?
3: vocalize the face I just made. Yeah. Yeah. We
1: do need to get a camera for you guys, our producer Mark. We'll, we'll work on that. But I, so what I want to know is, are people pushing him through as a joke or are they pushing him through out of some kind of Trump solidarity at this point?
3: It's got to be for the humor.
1: Right. They got to. You know, this is like when you used to have Remember, you had student council elections. There was always a candidate at in, in my school growing up who would run, who was like the kid who basically lived in detention and all the teachers thought was just a like you know a a class clown cut up bad kid who did bad not bad kid but you know the kid who was always misbehaving and getting into trouble You're he describing was, me. Oh really?
3: I was were, definitely the class clown. You were that kid? Oh yeah. yeah not mean. in detention all the time but I was a clown. Yeah, that surprises nobody.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, you got away with it though, right? You I were, did. Yeah. yeah. So I I just I would think that this is a little bit like that where they're they're voting for him specifically as it's almost like a protest vote against dancing with the stars
3: it's like that guy um on American Idol I forget his name that got through because he was hilarious was that the uh, the 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 a uh, William hung
1: yes yeah
3: he became a a star he sang
1: he sang in his I remember this back then he sang
3: it was she a Ricky... Bangs yes she bangs by Ricky Martin by Ricky Martin mm-hmm. yeah that was yeah. fantastic that was. but
1: terrible and then you know he put it on an album by the way yeah no I heard it
3: I look. You got to give American Idol
1: credit. I was just in Nashville of the weekend. Love you, Nashville. And there was uh, there, were, there were people. T- I was like, "Who are the biggest country music stars?" I asked a, a Nashville locals. Actually, a, a radio host. I asked um, uh, uh, Clay Travis uh, what he what he thought about it. And and he named all these different. And I said, "Oh, Carrie, Carrie Underwood's really Carrie Underwood's like a big deal in Nashville."
3: Yeah, because she's uh, married to the former captain of the Nashville Predators.
1: Oh. Mm. Is that a thing? That is a thing. Yes. I didn't know that.
3: But she's still a big deal from her music. Come on. Oh, of course, for her music as well. But she's also I'm like you know, married Stan to a hockey over star
1: over here. She was always my favorite. Yeah. I like Kelly Clarkson, but I don't know. I feel like she didn't reach her true potential. I
3: saw Carrie at the Garden once. I, feel I was like, forced.
1: Like Justin Guarini had his day. Remember that guy? I vaguely. He was in the movie from yeah. Kelly to Justin. They made okay. a movie yeah. after the first season <laughs> of American Idol. Oh, and it was so bad. I didn't see it. I saw previews, but man, it was so bad. But hey, you got to grab that money while you can. You know,
3: I think the only season I watched was when Clay uh, Aiken and Ruben stuttered. I used to, to watch American Idol with oh. my
1: parents. It was like a bonding experience. The show we could all in the early days. In the early days of that show, it was a phenomenon. It was yes. it was amazing. And some of the people they had come in, and the whole Simon Callick Oh, I'm a British guy, and I'm I'm just. Like a little mean, but you'll still love me anyway. Like that whole thing, you know. Now the voice
3: is actually really big.
1: Oh, is that the one? Yeah, that's
3: like that's a, the one with the chairs that they spin around in, and then the the stars coach them.
1: A little too theatrical for me. I'm an original guy, you know.
3: I said it was popular. That doesn't mean uh, yeah, I know.
1: No. I'm not as I'm not as into it. By the way, did you see the uh, Have you seen um, uh, what's it called? Uh, you've seen Breaking Bad, obviously.
3: Of course. I have not seen the movie yet.
1: So Breaking Bad um, has a movie that's out right now, which I did watch. And I got, oh, wait. Producer Nick tells me that Justin is now Lil Sweet from the Dr. Pepper ads. Did you know that? Justin Guarini has made a comeback in Dr. Pepper ads.
3: I don't drink Dr. Pepper. Well,
1: what I wanted to tell you all also is that uh, the new movie El El Camino
3: is terrible. (sighs)
1: so
0: boring
3: i haven't seen it yet i have to watch it just because of you know breaking bad it's really
1: like a just an episode a long episode of breaking bad it's not really a movie it's like if they added one more episode to breaking bad but was it it at least a good
3: episode no it ended
1: perfectly Mm. like why do they do this why do they have to at least make it a spin-off so i can ignore it is very sad. <sighs> but I have got a lot going. I mean, I've got a book to write, but the which is, you know, that's a problem. But uh I, I'm watching the Americans right now and also checking out a fair amount of uh oh I will be watching Peaky Blinders. Did you did see you, the spin-off off
3: of Breaking watch. Bad? With yeah, the, the
1: Saul. I thought it was a little boring. Really? I, I saw the first season. I didn't watch oh, beyond the first season. Season
3: after season 1 it gets so much better. It gets better. I loved it. Really? I have not seen the most recent season because it's not on Netflix or anything. Was. I
1: think my man Dave Reboy told me that he also really liked Better Call Saul. I loved it. The thing yeah. with the brother and it can't go outside and all that. I just was like, what is this?
3: It gets so much better, trust all
1: right. me. Hey, on, I'm going to watch based on producer Mark's recommendation here. And if it's terrible, we're going to make fun of producer Mark. Of course. Yeah. But anyway, so, so Sean Spicer, he got through and- I guess I'm going to have to watch an episode of this show now. Now that, now that the, because the spicy phenomenon is turning into its own thing.
3: I'm sure they put clips out on ABC. Just watch I've the I've seen Spicer a couple points. of the small, but I want to yeah. see the, I got to watch the whole show. I don't okay. even know how
1: this works. Like, it's a professional dancer with the not professional dancer. Yes, press. I believe
3: so. I
1: well, could see the professional dancers. That'll be kind of fun. I appreciate the technique. What?
3: You don't yeah. talk. Yeah, that's about. it.
1: Yeah so anyway spicy i guess we gotta do it should we should we join the vote for spicy train i don't know maybe could happen i have also
2: started to um perhaps be more candid talking about what i describe and what i believe to be the elephant in the room about my campaign what is that electability what do you mean electability you know essentially is america ready for a woman and a woman of color to be president of the United States. America was ready for a black man to be president of the United States. And this conversation happened for him. There is a lack of ability or a difficult, a difficulty in imagining that someone who we have never seen can do a job that has been done, you know, 45 times by someone who is not that person.
1: I got to tell you, I, I really don't like this uh this analysis this this view of things that kamala harris is offering up and we've we've heard it many times before we heard it from hillary is the country ready for a woman in this case with kamala harris is this is the country ready for a president who is a a minority woman the answer is yes okay we're ready for it The American people aren't. I I know Democrats have all convinced themselves that we're so racist and close-minded, and unless we agree with them on everything, then we're okay. But if we're if we have any other thoughts about anything, oh, we're such terrible people. These Americans are so awful. So much racism in this country. When every American I know, every person that I know, regardless of political affiliation, if you said, "Hey, there's a candidate. The candidate shares all of your ideas on all major policy issues." and it's just really inspiring and, and great. But the candidate has fill in any demographic profile you want and any gender you want. I guarantee you that anybody that you know in your life, you'd be like, yeah, fine. Who cares? Great. Doesn't matter. You know, White, black, Hispanic, Asian, you know, pick something else, you know, male, female, whatever it may be. If you like the person as a person, if you think they're a compelling politician, if you agree with them on policy, the vast I'm not saying, of course, there's stupid racists everywhere in every country all over the world. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. But the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans, of voters, you know, I, I would say. Ninety nine out of 100, maybe maybe nine out of 10, if you want to give yourself a little leeway. We have no no problem voting for a woman, no problem voting for a minority. And we just went through eight years of a president who was a minority. And it's almost like we're supposed to pretend that, you know, that that didn't have any meaning. It did. Country's still just as racist as it was. I mean, come on. It's just, it, it, you know, it's such a self-serving narrative. And especially in this case with Kamala Harris. It is such a self-serving narrative um, because she's dramatically underperforming. Because people just here's the thing, and I see this among. I'm not speaking about this as a Republican. What my field, you you know, my least favorite candidate is, is Beto because he's just like he, It's like he just reads the comments on the Huffington Post, and he's just like, yeah, I just want to like comment, and I just want to tell everybody that I'm going to take all your guns. And America's like super racist, but I'm not racist, but America's like so racist. <sighs> so, Beto's the worst. But from what I see from Democrats, people I know and follow and, and interact with, they're all really unimpressed with uh, Kamala Harris. They really do not like the campaign that she has run. So, is that whose fault is that the fault of sexism or racism or is it the fault of Kamala Harris for not doing a good job you know same thing with Hillary you know which is it was it a a big reason to vote for Hillary that she's a woman or was it a big hindrance to her winning the election that she's a woman oh well it depends on whether she wins or not I guess right and that's the way the analysis always goes well it depends on whatever's most politically useful for her at at any point in time I, I just I find it I honestly and truly find this—it's so boring. It's so typical. Uh, she has not run a, she has not run a campaign uh, in this case with uh, Kamala Harris. By the way, Tulsi Gabbard is outperforming Kamala Harris. Tulsi Gabbard is also, I I, I believe, qualifies a minority female unless I'm misunderstanding something, and she doesn't complain about this. So I think the complaints are just a, a way of self-justifying a, a weak campaign. But on the, on the other side of um, political correctness these days, you do have uh, Dave Chappelle with his most recent special, the name of it. I'm actually forgetting, but it was – do you remember the name, Producer Mark? No, I don't, remember, I don't remember the name. Whatever, it's good. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Look, there's some stuff that's edgy. There's some stuff that you might even be a little uncomfortable with. Exactly, It's comedy. Deal with it. He's got to push the boundaries a little bit. That's why comedy's so bad right now in general. Nothing is allowed to be funny. No one's allowed to make a joke. You're not allowed to laugh either. Oh, can't laugh. But what about if, like, I'm doing a bad impression and I'm just like, hey, I just want to know, like, am I the single biggest hypocrite in the race? And then Bernie's like, no, you're not the biggest. I'm the biggest. I got three houses. I'm a millionaire. Why are you doing But I just, like, really don't understand why the American people then just don't, like, Open their
0: hearts to better. Uh,
1: what was I even saying? Oh yeah. So you can make fun of politicians. That's okay. There are very few other people you can make fun of and get away with it. And uh, you know, one of my big frustrations is that I wish that I could do different fun accents here on the show. But I can basically, I can, I can reliably and without fear of of dramatically negative consequence, do accents of, uh. Public figures and people from America, you know, parts of America and European major or European countries and maybe like Australia and some, you know, the English speaking countries outside of America. That's it. Can't do accents from different parts of the world. Can't do, you know, any any sketch. You look at Robin Williams wouldn't have even had a comedy career if he were alive today because he wouldn't have been able to do any of the things that he did that made him famous. Not allowed. Can't, can't no jokes no asian accents no south asian accents east asian accents um i don't i don't think i'd be able to you can't do a latino accent you can't do any of these you're not allowed to do any accents cuz making make, doing an accent is terrible oh it's awful okay well, that seems unless you know like i said i can do Bernie, you can do beto i can do russian i can do italian there's some places you know i can make fun of irish people all day but that's an english people that's about it but Dave Chappelle was asked about comedy and political correctness, and uh, I I just I particularly enjoyed his response. Would you please play clip 11, Producer Mark?
0: Political correctness has its face, its place, excuse me. We all want to live in a polite society. We just have to kind of work on the levels and come to an agreement of what that actually looks like. I personally am not afraid of other people's freedom of expression. I don't use it as a weapon. It just makes me feel better, and I'm sorry if I hurt anybody, et cetera, et cetera, yada, 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 everything I'm supposed to say. <laughs> I like
1: that. I want to start doing that, you know, I, I, every time, for example, the left puts forward a, a veteran to criticize, to, to tear down President Trump or be part of the soft coup effort to uh, destroy the president. I want to say, you know, yada, yada, yada of course, respect respected service and all that, all the things I'm supposed to say. Now, can we talk about the issue <laughs> Like, now? Can we can we just assume the things that that, you know, we're we now have to have to say to establish that we're a good person before we talk about the issue? And I think the same thing is is kind of true with comedy now too. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. So I make some jokes. I don't want to offend anybody, yada yada yada, like, you know, can we just all be adults about this? Unfortunately, the answer is no. But I want the I want the yada 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 right. Where I can just say, yay, you know, all the stuff that you already know about me. Blah, blah, yada yada. I hate all the terrorists, but let's talk about this issue. Or blah, blah, you know, I I believe in the constitution and I am I, uh, a strong supporter of the United States military, but I disagree with this particular general on this thing or whatever it is. Welcome back Comic, to the Buck Sexton Show team. We, we haven't, haven't talked about this story yet. I haven't really been paying very close attention to it, but it has been getting a lot of headlines. You have a, a Democrat member of Congress who has resigned due to a, I guess we could just call it a sex scandal. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts, a lot of stuff going on here. Uh, we have Tiana Lowe, commentary writer for the Washington Examiner, joining us now to tell us what exactly went on here. Tiana, great to have you back.
2: Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right. So
1: so who is this now soon to be former member of Congress and what the heck happened?
2: So Katie Hill was representing a formerly uh, very Republican district of uh, Los Angeles County out in Simi Valley, Uh, And then she's a diehard progressive pro Medicare for all that she amounted to a part of Trump's uh, or the the, the supposed blue wave of 2018. Now, uh, Red State, the conservative news site, they broke a story uh, over a week ago that showed photos and text messages indicating that Hill had had one affair with her female campaign staffer and then another affair with an actual staffer in her congressional office. Hale, who is openly bisexual, um, apparently engaged the campaign staffer, another a 22-year-old woman in a throuple with her husband, like a polyamorous three-way relationship. Now on its face, you know, if, if they want to do polyamory, I don't think that her voters would have a problem with that. The issue is that, you know, a 22 year old in a relationship with someone more than a decade her senior who was also her boss is a bit problematic. And especially the texts that were released by red state indicated that the that the campaign staffer felt abused in the relationship and called a uh, hill toxic.
1: And the, what was it with the, the,
2: relationship-
1: the, the photos? By the, do we know where the photos came from and? And I I saw some conservatives who were saying that they felt like the photos should not have been published. What can you tell us about that? And what do you think about that?
2: I mean, I agree. Whoever leaked the photos does belong in jail because it violates revenge porn statutes in most states, including California. Um, And it's possible that it was the ex-husband who she's now going through a divorce with. You know, the photos should not have been leaked. However, it is of national interest if she was having a relationship with two of her subordinates, one of which violated House ethics rules that were passed just last year. You know, the House agreed that you, that, that members of Congress are not allowed to have relationships with their subordinates. And for obvious reasons, I mean, this is one where the Me Too movement was very necessary. We do have to understand that there is an abuse of power that is involved when you, have the, when you have the power to hire and fire people. Um, And this is a part of the reason why conservatives cared about both Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Um, But those are two separate issues. And now that the story is out there, yes, resigning was the right thing to do.
1: Did you notice a a, a slowness uh, from many of the major outlets to cover? Because I know you've been writing about this from the beginning. Was there a, a sense that you had that this was, was was getting less attention than it would have had the party affiliation of Katie, of Congressman Katie Hill been different? Or do you think that they that this story grew naturally as more information came out and that and that the uh, complaints that I've seen from some of our uh, some, some fellow conservatives out there that this was being suppressed or perhaps uh, a little bit ahead of ahead of where things were?
2: Oh, this absolutely was slow walk. You know, it took a week for the story to gain traction. If, if this were Dan Crenshaw, if there were photos of him nude, brushing the hair of one of his campaign staffers, this would be primetime news, 24-hour pearl clutching. Again, I'm not saying that revenge porn is good or acceptable or that, you know, that we should be focusing on the lasciviousness of the story but the fact is that you know the mainstream media had no had no problem salivating over the fact that i believe it was a republican congressman joe barton who had to resign after his ex paramour attempted to extort him with nude photos and wound up i believe she released them and that was a mainstream media story and no one was calling him a victim when clearly he
1: was do you think that there's also a, a problem at the left now? We're talking to Tiana Lowe everybody. She's commentary writer at the Washington Examiner. You can also follow her on Twitter at Tiana Lowe. Um, do you think that there's a there's an issue that the left runs into or, or uh, how do you think they handle I, because clearly there's an issue. How do you think they they handle and and the uh, the problems, the complexities that come up for them in dealing with women in power in workplace situations in the era of Me Too which has so clearly up to this point been almost entirely about men abusing positions of power. What do you think are some of the, uh, the the problems they run into in the application of the Me Too standard?
2: Well, again, this is, you know, the Me Too movement isn't about just exerting third wave feminism because women are capable of being aggressors. Women are capable of lying. It's about looking at power structures and caring about evidence. And the fact is that the evidence here was ample and showing that she i mean again so hill denies the affair with the staffer who works for her in congress or worked for her in congress and she's resigned um but the evidence indicates that she had not one but two affairs where she had the power to hire and fire people and the, i mean when it's two it's clearly a pattern and yes she should absolutely be held up to account as much as Al franken was. so
1: you so resigning was the right move yes uh, yeah there we go so do you think there's anything that comes after this, though? Is there anything else we should be looking out for, and any any changes in the way Congress will handle this stuff going forward?
2: Well, I think in the way that the that the media jumped to a uh, turn out all their actually Baghdadi was a uh, was courageous for blowing himself up in front of his three children and killing them in the black. Oh, we
1: talked about Max that, Boot
2: earlier in the show. He's a lunatic, but keep going. I think I think just in the way Max Boot realized, oh wait. No one else agrees with me because the story is insane. Like the last 24 hours, we've gotten a bunch of sympathetic coverage of Hill and whatnot. And I think everyone in the rest of the country realizes this isn't about a feminist. and This isn't an attack on a feminist. This is a Me Too story. And there's no reason why Hill should be given special treatment. I think that that much is finally apparent.
1: Now, I know you're a California native. I want to switch gears for a second. We were talking about a California congresswoman, too. Uh, but... Do you have an opinion on the 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 debate over one, whether the fires because right now there's all this news footage, right, because big fires gets people to click on things. That's just the simple reality. A lot of news footage, a lot of coverage of this. they got a couple of bad fires going in, in Los Angeles area, I believe, and up in Sonoma County, too. Do you have an opinion on why this is happening or whether the state's mismanagement or anything else plays a role in this?
2: Yes. So obviously climate change is a factor, but a big one um, does have to do with how. So, the, so there are two factors involved in the state and county governance. So the state government is probably the most to blame because they don't do controlled forest fires. They don't spend enough money. You know, I mean, L.A. County, one in four out of every 10 Angelenos is, is on Medi-Cal, Medicaid, Medicare. Yet they don't they aren't willing to spend enough money on, you know, patrolling the actual safety and preemptively doing controlled burns. Um, but then also there is apparently an issue when it, I, and, and I don't know the semantics of it, Bucks. So I'm not going to get into too much detail. But it looks like there's a little bit of corruption between PG&E, the energy company that is right now having to do uh, blackouts, blackouts. Yeah. It looks like there is a little bit of corruption between PG&E and Governor Gavin Newsom. Like, I think that PG&E donated to Newsom's campaign, and uh, I mean, it's it's, everything out there is quite corrupt. But I would certainly blame more than anyone the state government.
1: At what point does the? At what point is there a critical mass of Californians that just recognize that apart from politics, their state government? is a disaster and there needs to be some change are 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 they close to that or is that never going to happen what you know because i mean if you look at this from even from the east coast i'm here in new york where we have you know mayor moron de blasio running things but if we see california we see all this stuff going on we're like why can't anybody understand that some of this at least is the result of crappy government decisions do californians just think that this is the way it has to be or is there a a sense that they're going to cross the tipping point
2: I mean, California, the supposedly most progressive country in the state, has a, has a Gini coefficient closer to a South American country than any red state. Um, you know, the income inequality is terrible. The uh, racial divisions are, from a city perspective, are not great. Um, an issue there is that the, 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 the California state Republican Party has basically given up. If you compare how, how the Republican Party in Texas treats minorities and does outreach and how they perform quite well versus California. You know, the, the difference is astounding. So it will take both, I think a collapse. I mean, the next recession, the, the, the debt problem, in California is going to prove monumental. But um, if you look at it, it will take the state government having a wake up call in terms of like the exodus in the state that's happening right now. And then also the California Republican party rebuilding and throwing out good candidates
1: all right. We'll have to wait for that. <laughs> that might be a while. Yep. Tiana Lowe, everybody, Washington Examiner. Check it out. What's your next piece going to be on, or have you not decided yet?
2: Um, I haven't decided yet. Um, keeping tabs on this Ukraine thing, so we'll see.
1: All right. Well, go to com. look for Tiana Lowe, follow her on social media, Twitter and Facebook and stuff. Tiana, thanks for joining. Thank you, Buck. Let's talk about Medicare for all for a moment, shall we? Oh, Yes primary policy idea of the democrats right now the single biggest debate in the country over a true policy issue and there is a bipartisan group that has just looked at medicare for all and guess what folks it is too much money the only ways i mean if you're just looking at this as a pure function of the numbers the only ways to get anything close to funding for medicare for all and that's assuming you don't have spikes in usage because now people just show up like yeah hey, i'll go to the doctor i'll go to the doctor who cares uh, would be if you instituted crippling taxes on everybody this is what this uh this piece today this medicare for all study uh funding medicare for all with tax on the rich is impossible according to this study this is a bipartisan budget watchdog report that was just released and here are some of the most worthwhile findings. Quote, uh, there is not enough annual income available among higher earners to finance the full cost of Medicare for all on a static basis, even increasing the top two income tax rates, applying to individuals making over $200,000 a year and couples making over four hundred dollars per year to 100% would not raise $30 trillion over a decade. An accompanying chart in the study lists the tax the rich funding option as impossible. The options for uh, financing Medicare for All without increasing taxes are similarly immoderate. The CRFB says the federal government would need to cut the non-health federal spending by 80% in order to pay for Medicare for All without increasing taxes. This would require, get ready for it, it's going to be fun, cutting Social Security benefits from approximately $18,000 to about $3,600 each year and cut troop numbers, wait for it, from $1.3 million to $270,000. So truly slash and burn the military down to numbers that would be unrecognizable to America for the last couple hundred years. Uh, And... Make Social Security benefits far less for people. And this is just, there's only so many ways you can try to move these numbers around. You can try to rebalance them, cut here, slash there, tinker around the edges. And then you might say, well, what about modern monetary theory, Buck? And to that I say, oh, they looked at that as well. Quote, Deficit financing Medicare for all would be far more damaging to the economy, according to the report. Assuming that such a massive increase in the debt would not royal financial markets or lead to high inflation, we estimate that 108% of GDP increase in the federal debt would shrink the size of the economy by roughly 5% in 2030, the equivalent of a $4,500 reduction in per-person income, And far more than that in the following years. You can't pay for this with the rich and you can't pay for this without massive tax increases. And if you try to pay for it by just adding to our already out of control debt, guess what? You're going to crater. You're going to crater the economy. And that's assuming that there's not just a, a crisis that comes up. That would make everybody much poorer and worse off and, and all the rest of it. But you know, I remember I was at I was at Politicon talking to people and they these Democrats on stage with me, they think you're crazy, or they think I'm crazy, because I look at this and I see the numbers and I say, This is not a good idea. There is a a faith-based component in Medicare for all. Remember, a lot of people who are big-time statists tend to be a lot, not all of them, a lot of them tend to be atheists or uh, people of no particular faith. And the state then is what would be in in loco deus, in place of God. Uh, The state is in place of God. The state plays the role of God in many people's lives. And therefore, they have no problem with the state growing all the time and becoming a more prominent part of everyone's lives and having more power, because that's just going to be better for all of us. Uh, But there is a deep ideological need that many people have who are supporting this Medicare for all proposal to remove any market based incentives, any individual choice from from this equation and make it all about just the government writing the checks, the government's writing the checks. And to this, I also just want to say health is a very personal thing for all of us. We all make decisions that affect our health. I mean, you know, I know, for example, I should eat less chocolate and like not drink tequila or mezcal during the week. But like sometimes I want some chocolate. You know, sometimes, you know, you want, you don't want to get the side salad, you want to order a French fries. We're all making decisions all the time about our health that affect our health, I should say. And it's really more about habits than, I, I know that's silly to say any eating any one thing, but it's about habits that we have. But we also have to understand that the choices that we make about which doctors to see, about are, are about how we're going to try and maintain a certain level of health, those are going to affect us no matter what the government does or says. And I, I think this is where there needs to be uh, a, a bigger discussion about how do people how do people stay healthy in America. We're always talking about pre existing conditions and people with terrible diseases, and that's not where most healthcare spending is. Pre existing conditions are actually a very small part of healthcare spending. Even I mean, put aside whether the people are are covered or not. I just mean that that's a very very small segment of the population. A true pre-existing condition that would have been uninsurable before Obamacare. Most healthcare spending is lifestyle disease related, most of it, or old age, and those are things that require an approach of people educating themselves, making smart choices, making a decision. And and a different approach from the medical community about how to encourage healthy behaviors earlier and younger. And, you know, this is, it's just such a bigger issue than, oh, the government's gonna write the check for everything, everything's gonna be fine. You know, I mean, if the government is gonna be writing the check for your treatments because you have, you know, cirrhosis of the liver, for example, you know, that, okay, someone's writing the checks, but it would have been much better to figure out how to stop that from happening, stop the drinking that led to that, perhaps. Yeah, this is just it's more of a philosophical discussion, but Medicare for all is not going to solve all the problems is what I'm saying. You all know, I find the border to be one of the most important issues facing the country. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's one of the areas we see the greatest amount of obvious dishonesty from the mainstream media in their coverage of it. And that then brings me to a story that I saw and I thought, why isn't this getting more attention? And, you know, and it's because the media is completely invested in. The Russia, Ukraine, Trump is a traitor. Trump needs to be impeached. All that 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 just dominates. It takes all the oxygen out of the room. But this story is important. This this story matters in a way that I think people should be much more aware of, much more cognizant of. Uh, and it has to do with the Trump administration at the border testing or or getting ready to test. I it's I think they've started to do it, but they're keeping it pretty close hold right now. How it's working. Rapid asylum review, which would mean that now Border Patrol, and this is going to change the process. And oh, we know there's going to be all these lawsuits, but here's the basics of it: the whole scam that, and it was a scam. The scam that has been run by predominantly Central American, but not entirely Central American, illegal immigrants in the United States, illegal aliens in the United States, uh, is based on exploiting. The inability of the system to process people in a timely enough fashion, so that what ends up happening is they're released in the interior of the United States and released with the promise that they will come, that they will come back and show up for their hearings. And as we know, once you're in the United States, you establish more roots, and then you have you know all these lawyers that are free that'll come and pro bono represent you against the immigration courts. there are all these. So it makes it very unlikely, very hard that any of these people who are coming in this were going to be deported. So it became a big backdoor scam to get in the United States. Say you're fleeing violence in a Central American country. Well, I mean, all these Central American countries we're talking about have very high per capita homicide rates. So anyone, therefore, could claim they're fleeing violence. And if anyone could claim they're fleeing violence, well, then we might as well just allow the entire country of Honduras to just come to America. And I bet a lot of them would if they thought they could. So uh, we've seen this scam playing and the Democrats lied about this and the media lied about this. Oh, they're just there. There's no one lying and there's no one who's scamming the system. Of course, there were you you had 30 year olds saying that they were 17 so they could come in as an unaccompanied minor. You had people renting children so they could pose as family units. You had people who were reading from a script that they had been taught by the cartels so they could get past the initial screening at the southern border. You had all this stuff going on. And the Trump administration at every turn has been stymied, has been has been uh, slowed down by Democrats and leftists who are open borders, but won't admit that they're open borders It's a very important thing that we must all keep in mind here. They they will just want anyone who shows up gets to stay, especially if you're from a third world, especially if you're not English speaking. You show up in America, you should get to stay. That is a widespread belief on the left. They'll say, oh, but we're all a nation of immigrants and we're all, yeah, right. Legal immigrants, not not supposed to be a nation of people who come in breaking the law. And also the nation of immigrants thing, are we talking about pre or post welfare state, great society programs, 1960s, all that stuff? Are we talking about before that or after that? Because there's there's some pretty big distinctions in there about the incentives for coming to this country. But the Trump administration was having a lot of problems in this whole situation because the process uh, was over the processes were overwhelmed people knew that they were exploiting that and they were taking advantage all right so then we get to well what can be done about it and they tried this remain in mexico program well that would that would deal with the incentive in this way if you're not if you come to the border first of all they're illegally crossing Because another way they were trying to limit this was to say that you have to wait at a port of entry. They can only process so many people at a port of entry every day. So then the illegal aliens would just cross illegally into America, but then claim defensive asylum, secondary asylum, and say, oh, no, I want asylum, even though I came into your country illegally. And then they get into this process where they stay in America and they're never going to leave. So to deal with that, we'd say, "Okay, you're going to claim defensive asylum. What if we keep you in Mexico while you're waiting for your asylum hearings? Hmm. A lot of them are a lot of them all of a sudden stop showing up because they that's not what they're that's not what they want. They want to be released in the interior of the United States. They want to be on U.S. soil and then try to game the system so they can stay. So if you keep them on Mexican soil while they're waiting to get their asylum hearing, that's a big removal of incentive. Oh, and the liberals fought against this and their lawsuits and judges and you know federal judges. Oh, you can't do that. Why can't they do that? Oh, you can't do that because we say so. Still waiting for a Ninth Circuit judge to overturn Trump's killing of uh, Baghdadi under the Administrative Procedure Act. Unconstitutional! The killing of Baghdadi. I'm sure there's a lib somewhere who's going to say it, who's going to try to put that through. I mean, I'm kidding, but only kind of. But the other, the story that I thought was so interesting that just came out in the last few days is that they're they're now testing, the administration is testing rapid asylum review. Rapid asylum. Asylum review. Huh. So what this would be is a change in the process where instead of just doing a very preliminary credible fear screening by Border Patrol, Border Patrol would do a more extensive credible fear screening to see if somebody should even be let into the country to begin the asylum process. They're probably able to ask for some supporting documentation or some details of this credible fear I.E. people being told, hey, just the cartels telling these illegal aliens, just say that you're fleeing gang violence. And, you know, if you go home, you'll be killed and you'll be led into America. Well, uh, if you have somebody there who's obviously Spanish speaking, who can say, all right, which gang was it? What threats did you receive? Did you file a police report? Why are they targeting you and not other people? You know, very straightforward questions. I think we all know what would happen. There wouldn't be answers to this. Because it's a scam. But they think that they might be able to, through this program, begin to process asylum applications in this way within 10 days. So now you would stay in Border Patrol custody, not be released in the interior of the United States and get it done within 10 days, whether or not you even can begin the asylum review process. Because under law, you have to establish the credible fear standard. So this is now saying, well, they're going to. A little more a little more uh, teeth into the credible fear standard and make this something that's a real standard. This could be a game changer. The southern border, the crossing's already down, but this could be a game changer. And you know what's going to be fascinating to watch? All of these Democrats and open border activists and, and media virtue signalers who are going to say, This is terrible. They're not getting their due process. Why isn't it due process? Why should lawyers show up and tell these people what to say so that they can try to game the system and stay in America. They should be able to answer straightforward questions about whether or not they, why they they say they have a credible fear standard or why they meet that credible fear standard. But folks, the, the, the game looks like it may be up soon here. And I think we all need to remember that there were many people, many prominent people, millionaires, in the media and others who were willing to just go along with the lies on this because it made them feel like they were good people. And that's what the Democrats wanted. That's what the left wanted. Oh, we're all so open-minded. We have open hearts about all this stuff. No one's lying. We just take in people. Well, does everyone get to stay? No, not everyone gets to stay. Just everyone who comes and lies to Border Patrol about credible fear. Just every family unit that shows up explicitly to exploit a law meant to prevent the exploitation of children through trafficking, but now with families, they realize that We can't separate the kids, so they keep showing up. The good faith and goodwill of the American people was being taken advantage of by a lot of people at our southern border. I understand many of them are poor and desperate, and I get that. It doesn't make them bad people, but it doesn't mean that we have to continue policies that encourage that exploitation. The Trump administration right now is trying to shut that down, give them process, and I think that that's a good thing. We shall see if it works. Get ready for all the legal challenges.
3: Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call.
1: Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com or Facebook.com slash Buck Saxton if you want to be a part of the Roll Call action. Uh, We have Paul writing in first here. He writes, Hey, Buck, hope all is well in the Freedom Hut. It's okay. It's okay. Producer Mark is not particularly grumpy today, so that's a good thing. I was listening to Friday's show and wanted to update you on your prediction about Hollywood mainstreaming the idea about uh, polygamy, polyamorousness, or polyamor, whatever you call it. There are at least two shows about this topic that have appeared on TV Big Love, which ran from 2016 to 2011 on HBO, and Sister Wives, which started in 2010 and is still producing new episodes on TLC. The list of entertainment that deal with the topic on streaming services and alt- uh, alternative tech is too large to get into. It's kind of scary. As always, love, love, love the show. Love the hair. Shields high. Paul. Well, Paul, you have great taste in radio shows as well as hair. So thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, but Big Love is about polygamy. Which is, I guess, a little different than polyamorous, uh, or poly. Is is the is the noun polyamor? I don't know what you. Producer Mark, do you know? I mean, you're about to get married, so I mean, I'm assuming you know this is not not an area that has really crossed your radar all that much.
3: Oh, I didn't tell you, I'm getting married to three Six, different. Several, women. I yeah. should <laughs> say. You're
1: getting married to a few people. That would that would make sense. Um, that's got to be expensive, right? People always complain about kids. Can you imagine having multiple wives?
3: Oh, that'd be terrible. That'd be expensive. You know? Why would I want to get nagged by more than one woman? I was like, "Well,
1: how many times can you go through the boring details of your day before it turns into a violation of the Geneva Convention?"
3: Yeah, do you just do it like in a group about your day and then ask yeah, about yeah, all you their gotta, days? Yeah, like sit everybody
1: down like you got a blackboard behind you and a pointer like and then I had lunch and then I did this and then, you know. But really they they don't want to they don't care about you. they just want to tell you about their day. Exactly. So that's you got to get through that fast and then you got to sit there and, like, about their and then she said this about me, and I'm so upset about this. I'm like, then she said this, and then she said this other thing. Mm-hmm.
3: See, I voted that for a long time working nights. Now that we're uh, during the day, I get that again. Yeah, there we go. Thanks, Buck.
1: That's what I'm here for. Mm. James. Great first name. Hey, Buck, I will never vote for a socialist or any of the far left totalitarian controllers. Uh, Nazis are far left too. Um, I'll stick to the right of center where our wise founders placed us. Uh, and there we go, James of Boston. Thank you, James of Boston. Let's see here, Brandon Buck. One of the main characters was part of a terrorist group and was also part of an of a polyamorous group in the show Caprica, Battlestar Galactica prequel. Hmm, from Brandon, I didn't. I don't know. I, you know, I'm going to say it. I couldn't get through Battlestar Galactica. I got. I thought the graphics and stuff were too cheesy. I got I got bored. And I know people say it's an amazing show and it's like life changing if you watch it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Couldn't get excited about Battlestar Galactica. I, I really I really did try. Uh, Don, take this ball and run, run, run! What an inspiration for our world! This president has confirmed we have ex- extinguished a demonically driven individual. Uh, how can anyone in our media try to spin this? Blah, blah. There we go. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Bruce. Buck, you and your producers suffer from only knowing well the happenings during your lifetimes in sports, movies, and music. No one can match Wilt Chamberlain. He averaged 50 points per game for one season and one scored 100 points in a game. The NBA even changed the court layout because of him. I believe they widened the lane so there was more room for penetration toward the goal without an automatic block by Wilt the Stilt. Bruce in New Orleans. Probably listened down, hopefully down in uh, on our wonderful New Orleans radio station, which uh, people can listen on, which is a lot of fun. What do you have? What? you got to say something.
3: Well, I was about to back. Shouldn't you know the station? Yeah, of course
1: I know the station. It's a wonderful station.
3: Of course. Yeah,
1: don't worry about it uh don add charlie daniels band st- uh, to your playlist i don't know what that is who is that i
3: don't know what? sounds like a band yeah, yeah. yeah. sounds like a music rec- recommendation yeah hmm. there we go
1: maureen hey buck and producer mark you man of mystery she wrote it not me about the whole polyamory thing, you are sometimes conflating all the variations of such lifestyles. So here's some clarity for your listeners. Polygamy is one man with more than one wife. You yeah, know, I know. Polyandry is one woman with more than one husband. Oh, I didn't know that. And they are only with her and nobody else. Wait, polyandry is one woman with more than one husband? And they are with her and nobody else? That's a thing? I don't even know know that was a thing. Did you know that was a thing? I never heard of that. Learning new stuff. All right. Polyamory, however, is a total sexual free-for-all. It's one man and one woman in a relationship together, often married, but they're free to be with any man and woman they want to be with. As many partners of either gender as they want, it's a total free-for-all on both sides of a very non-monogamous pairing. That's polyamory. It's sad, I know about this stuff, but I'm a psychotherapist, so I just know about things. By the way, I'm grateful. That's why she knew what polyandry. I never even,
3: that was like some that's some textbook stuff. That's some textbook level stuff. Yeah,
1: that's like with the dusty books behind the doc. You know what I mean? That you know, like what is in there? is in those books. I don't even know what that is. By the way, I'm so grateful for your podcast. As you often get, but you often get preempted for stupid sports. I love football, but not if it hears uh, if it interferes with hearing your voice. The podcast assures me I'll never have to miss a broadcast. I saw you on Pluto TV uh, once, but it's not as convenient as your podcast sometimes. So you do keep many of us safe and warm listening to you. You're simply the best. Maureen in California. Well, thank you so much, Maureen. And yes, remember, folks, if you're uh, ever unable to listen on your local radio station, um, you can always listen to the podcast. So that's why I ask that you please subscribe. Even if you're not somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts, please do subscribe to the podcast of the Buck Sexton Show, and that way, whenever you want to listen any day, it'll be on your phone. Subscribe on iTunes or on the iHeart app, and also download Pluto TV. And you you can watch this show, Channel 248, the first, the best channel. There's a lot of stuff on there, though, just so I'm saying. It's a worthwhile app for you to download in general. Uh, but the first, Channel 248 on Pluto, is where we do our show. And Jesse Kelly also shows up and does his show, and we're going to have other people joining in the action in the weeks and months ahead, which is going to be fantastic. That's going to be our show. we got to go because producer Mark's got important things to do. But uh, we will talk to you all tomorrow. Shields high.